the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's fun. It's interesting. It's weird. It's whatever you want it to be. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Welcome into episode number 20 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. My name is Kyle. If you don't know, if you don't know, that's weird. You must have just jumped in on this episode. And if you did, I would love to thank you for being here with me today. If you didn't know that because you play my podcast or download it for absolutely no reason other than to do so, well, thanks for the downloads. I appreciate them. But for everyone else, guys, I am still here, still at it. And I got wonderful news. Of course I got wonderful news. Was there any doubt? Yes. Was there any doubt? Of course there was. But I was able to conquer that NCLEX nursing board mountain, and I am officially licensed to practice nursing in the state of Nebraska. Guys, it's... Well, you know what? Let's pause for an applause break. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's it's a wonderful feeling that this last four years of, of fucking college and bullshit finally came to a head, and I was able to accomplish the goal I set out for myself more than four years ago to finally be here. And it's equally amazing that I was somehow able to keep up with this fucking dumb idea of a podcast that I had and keep it going. Might I remind everyone... I have not missed a week, not a single Friday has gone by since that first episode, I think I posted September 3rd or 4th or something like that, not a single Friday since then has gone by without you having the ability to download my podcast and listen to the Sultry Tones and the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. In addition, we've nailed mini episodes as well. So I've given you guys all kinds of content and I got to tell you, I thought it was so fucking dumb of me to make that plan when it was like November and December. I was like, oh my God, I'm so stressed. How how am I going to do all the stuff that I need to do and also make the podcast that I sort of planned and figured, oh, this will be really easy. This last semester is totally a walk in the park. I lost all kinds of time and then all, all kinds of time fell by the wayside, but still I was able to make the podcast, which is something that I'm almost nearly as proud of as actually uh, accomplishing getting my license um, for nursing. So I'm just in a good mood. Uh, hopefully you can tell that in the the, the tone of my voice. I, I'm having a good time. Um, I have plans for the show going forward, just like we talked about. We will cover that a little bit more at the very end of the episode. So if you want to skip 
to that completely, you may certainly do so. I like I said, I've added chapters into these now. So if you if you want to skip everything in this podcast and and hear about what's going to happen uh, at the very end, go ahead and do so, or listen to the whole thing in between. I would I would love if you did that as well. All I can say is now we are going to definitely make this podcast um, more thematic. We are going to kind of call this episode the the uh, kind of a de facto, not maybe necessarily official, but a de facto um, series, not series, no, 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 not series, season finale of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. You can sort of consider this the uh, the 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 finale of the first season of the show. And next Friday will be the beginning of the second season where episodes are going to become a little bit more um, thematic. They're going to sort of follow each other a little more closely rather than bouncing around like crazy like they do now. So I'll explain more about that at the end of the show. We'll probably talk about it more um, on the the Twitter account, probably my personal and the show's Twitter, which, by the way, at the Couch Pod, go ahead and go follow that account. That is the dedicated account for the show on Twitter. Um, yeah, guys, I don't have anything else to really bullshit about. I'm just having a good time. Today's story is about Robert Gould Shaw. Uh, if you know me very personally, you'll know that um, I saw the movie Glory in eighth grade. And I'll, besides being one of my favorite war movies that I can think of in general, which is kind of crazy. I think there's, there's so many good there are so many good war movies out there, both um, domestic war movies and foreign war movies. There are so many good military war-driven movies out there that, you know, Glory, I never really figured would be one of my favorites, but I've watched it multiple times, and I, I enjoy it every single time I watch it. I remember in eighth grade, or it might have been seventh grade, a seventh or eighth grade, one of the two, we actually had to get permission slips from our parents because we watched it in school because it's a it's a decent little um it's not you know 100 percent accurate um historic historically or 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 militarily or whatever but the story is pretty well told and it, it's it's a it's a nice you know kind of visceral exposure to the american civil war and and in, it's in 1989 was when this movie was released and um, it was rated R. It still is rated R, obviously, but it was rated R. And if you ever watch it, you'd be like, "What the fuck was this rated R for?" But you know, times were times were different back then. So, and then when we were you know twelve or thirteen year olds in middle school, obviously we couldn't watch a rated R movie out in theaters if we wanted to. So we had to get permission slips um, from our parents to go watch this movie. And I'll always just kind of remember you know how that was like oh man we're gonna we're gonna watch a rated r movie in school what oh it's gonna be so cool i'm sure a lot of the kids uh immediately retracted that sentiment because it was just a kind of a stuffy old war movie and it's you know the violence in it isn't all that terrible um the n-word gets dropped a few times i think there might be an f-bomb in there a couple times but really very much like a pg-13 movie uh, is the these days for sure and but I was always I've always been a fan of history as long as I can remember, even when I was a little kid, you know, all the way up to to now, um, where I just look at my screen and talk to myself. And you know, I loved that movie and it just stuck with me so much. And I knew I was gonna eventually do a, a an episode on Robert Gould Shaw, and that is what this episode is about. That is who that episode is about. Um and, and spoiler alert, I actually recorded this intro after I recorded the episode. <laughs> it's not great. 
I really threw this one together super quick because of my time crunch, but it's still not terrible, and it'll give you a nice little story about um, the man who commanded the first all-black battalion of soldiers in the Civil War. So without further ado, without all that other bullshit going on, guys, let's talk a little bit about Robert Gould Shaw. Episode 20, now it's for the Couch Podcast. Stick with me. guys let's talk a little bit about robert gould shaw in the 54th massachusetts infantry regiment now this episode isn't going to be terribly long because robert gould shaw and uh the 54th were mainly known for uh, a, a single thing really done in history but i'm just gonna this is just a, a really you know quick easy episode um like I said at the top of the show, didn't have a ton of time to record this week. I've uh, been busy with orientation style things uh, for my outside life, outside this podcast. But uh, we're still going to get a story, and this one is going to sort of uh, uh, lead into what I plan on doing uh, going forward, at least uh, a little bit, at least ancillarily. So, Robert Gouldshaw was born on October 10th, 1837. He was born into a prominent abolitionist family, meaning his family was very anti-slavery. Now, this was sort of the uh, the thing going on. We, if you think back into the uh, caning of Charles Sumner episode that we did uh, a few episodes ago, uh, sentiments in the North and South were a lot like um, I don't want to say a lot like today, but the the sort of division that you see today, like take that. And then take it times a hundred, and you get the just the soul crushing, shearing differences between those who were pro slavery and those who did own slaves, and those who were very anti slavery and wanted black men to be as free as white men. And obviously, there were shades of gray, just like there is in every walk of life. There are people who are extremely racist and awful in the North who were abolitionist types who were fine with black men and women being free, but were still total fucking racist assholes. So, and there are people who are very uh, egalitarian and full of equality. And, you know, I hate to say it because it sounds definitely like a, a quote-unquote all-sides thing, but there are definitely Southerners who were uh, either abolitionists or Southerners who were pro-slavery, but were, you know, not nearly as terrible as maybe they were put forward in, in writing and film. Although I will say that, your uh your goodness rating is automatically set stre- extremely low 
if you are cool with owning people like property. So that is the uh, the, the one qualifier there. So anyhow, Robert Goldshaw is born into a, a prominent abolitionist family, a very wealthy family in uh, in Massachusetts. Now, he was pr- pretty unremarkable as a kid and as a man uh, uh, growing up. He was born to uh, Francis George and Sarah Blake Shaw. Um, these guys were, like I said, these these Unitarian philanthropists, intellectuals, abolitionists, very well-to-do people. So because of this well-to-do um, upbringing, Robert was sent off to to various uh, 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 boarding schools and and different places to get you know the, the the finest of education, so to speak. Very much living the, um, I guess you could call it the one percent lifestyle of uh, of someone who could live that you know in the eighteen thirties, forties. And fifties, uh, uh, when Robert was five years old, his man, his family moved to a large estate in West Roxbury. And during his teens, he traveled and studied for some years in Europe. So, like we say, we're seeing the privilege here with Robert and his family. Uh, in the eighteen forties, they then moved to Staten Island in New York, a little bit south of of their Massachusetts home, um, where Shaw then attended the second division uh, of St. John's College um, at the behest of his uncle. Joseph Shaw, who he admired very much, um, and, and and began his high school education there in 1850, the same year that uh, his uncle Joe began studying for entrance uh, into the Jesuit exam. His uncle Joe was an ordained uh, minister. Then later in 1851, just a year later, while at St. John's studying, Robert's uncle, the aforementioned Joe, died from tuberculosis. Now, Robert was 13 at this time, and he had a really difficult time adjusting to the the lack of his uncle in his life, his uncle was an extremely important guy to him. He actually wrote a uh, a letter to his parents, one of many, claiming that he was so homesick that he often cried in front of his classmates. It's interesting to think that this is a guy who could be so brought to tears by his uncle passing away that you know, and he was in a in a new spot where he he didn't really know anybody, that this guy would eventually become the man he would become. So he gets moved around uh, here and there and, and everywhere uh, during his, his teen years because his parents are, are, you know, they feel bad for, for poor young Robert and, and they, they want the best for him. So they move him after St. John's uh, to Europe where he then went to boarding school in Switzerland for a couple of years. He didn't like that very much. So then he was transferred to another boarding school in Hanover, Germany which he also didn't like very much and just kind of was a sort of a little complainy, whiny type of kid. Um, there really wasn't really wasn't much that was great for little Robert Gould Shaw. You know, there's just he was one of those guys that and I can this is the, the part I can really uh, uh, relate to with him is that he really didn't have a great sense of where he wanted to go. In life, or what he wanted to do with life, he, he's described uh, all of the time, very often, in biography and and other places, you know, um, um, by himself and by others uh, who knew him, that he was a really restless soul, you know, a really a guy who just kind of didn't know what he wanted to do, what his uh, his ultimate destiny in life was going to be. Later on, while he was in Europe. Robert uh, read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, the Shaw family was friends with Harry Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and and Shaw read the book a, a ton of times, and he was extremely moved 
by the plot and its anti-slavery attitude. Now, like I said, he was born in and raised in a prominent abolitionist family, but he was the type of guy who just sort of scoffed at the politics or scoffed at the, the notion. He wasn't racist and crazy. He just wasn't super abolitionist either. This is sort of the tipping point that would eventually move him into a position that he was going to finally establish, you know, his 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 ultimate destiny, so to speak. Um, at the same time, when he was in Europe, he also was was becoming this like super patriotic guy. All of a sudden, it was kind of crazy, you know, a guy who was you know sort of listless and restless back and forth and 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 here too and and there too. All of a sudden, became like when he reads Uncle Tom's Cabin and he interacts with all these European people, he becomes super super patriotic because there is this anti-American sentiment in in some European circles. Probably not terrible, but enough the fact that he was probably rubbing elbows with other well-to-do Europeans, and, and especially at this time in the 1860s Europe, you still have this sort of uh, monarchical, you know, kingdom, empire style of, of Europe, you know, with, with um, all these different kingdoms minus a couple of the republics and, and stuff here and there, but very much like old old-timey, old-school, you know, Western civilization compared to the new-school Western civilization in the United States, in his native America. And he all of a sudden gets bolstered patriotically, like, yeah, fuck these guys, you know, whatever, Europe. Like, you go do what you're going to do. You know, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to go help out because I feel very strongly. So he wanted to join the Army or the Navy. He was very... uh, um interested in attending West Point or going to the Naval Academy, but his parents really just weren't into that because they knew Robert better than that and knew that he probably wasn't going to be able to commit to that. So instead, he comes home um, in 1856. Now we're only five years before the Civil War at this point. 1856 goes to Harvard. Harvard obviously is in Boston, is near his um, his his area of, of being raised and grown up back in Massachusetts. Um, but, of course, being... Classic Robert, classic Bobby Gould, he withdraws before he graduates. Um, He would have been part of the class of 1860, but he withdrew in 1859 because for some reason he just couldn't goddamn complete a single thing he wanted to do, or at least a single thing that he found himself being a part of. Um, After leaving Harvard in 1859, he then returns to Staten Island to work with one of his other uncles, at that uncle's mercantile firm, which was called the Henry P. Sturgis and Company, but as usual, found life at the company office disagreeable, of course. So still, still, even at this age, he is just wandering around trying to figure out what he wants to do, what he wants to do. Then all of a sudden, the Civil War breaks out, and Mr. Robert Gould Shaw finds some amount of purpose. He is actually able to join into the Civil War on the side of the Union, and he's able to do what he wanted to do. Now, you know, he translated his his patriotism sort of in this way. Obviously, this, this isn't an American war uh, versus a European power, but it, it still sort of seemed a little bit like that. You know, being a man who fought on the side of the Union, he very likely uh, considered his fighting on the side of the Union as you know, fighting for uh, American values, fighting for unionist values, fighting for the the nation that had that he was so prideful 
being a part of. Obviously, you probably have those similar type of sentiments if you're a uh, Confederate soldier, you know, fighting for, um, you know, quote unquote, states' rights, fighting for your lifestyle, fighting for your way of life, and the the uh, the the war of of northern aggression. These these goddamn northern industrialist dickheads are trying to come down and fuck our shit up. Well, they can go uh, f themselves, and we are going to secede one by one, make our own goddamn country. Here we go. Oh, looks like they want to take their quote-unquote country back to them, well, we're not going to give it up without a fight. You know, it's 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 different styles of patriotism. So, you know, he was finally, this is the this is the turning point in Robert Goldshaw's life, which is unfortunate because there's not a ton of life left after this portion. But this is sort of the turning point in Robert Goldshaw's life where he felt like he was finally, finally finding something that he could, you know, really commit himself to something that he was very passionate about, something that he wouldn't uh, completely and utterly half-ass. So originally in in the war, um, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant uh, in the second Massachusetts Infantry, not the fifty fourth, which we'll talk about in a, a second here, but the second Massachusetts Infantry, where he fought in the battles of Winchester, Cedar Mountain, and very famously. Antietam, one of the bloodiest conflicts, if not the bloodiest conflict, um, Civil War honks, if you're living, listening to this, I didn't do a shit ton of super detailed research battle-wise, because this um, this episode is not about the Civil War, it isn't about any battles in the Civil War, it is about one man who and his regiment that participated in the Civil War, so if I say stuff like one of the bloodiest or is the bloodiest battles, um, and I'm not correct, please go ahead and contact the show and check my facts um, but from what I can recall um, from my own history classes, my own recollection, Antietam especially was uh, one of the most bloody battles of the Civil War, and Robert Gould Shaw was a part of this battle. So during this battle and during the sub or subsequent the uh, the previous battles that he had engaged in, Robert uh, sort of turned this new leaf over, not just as some sort of like war hungry, bloodthirsty type of guy, but a guy who was very prideful about um, the men who served around him for a purpose and the men who uh, fought alongside him as brothers. And it's with this attitude as well as his um, as well as his upbringing and his his his, you know, thinking about, you know, when he's when he's ready Uncle Tom's cabin and how he's just this. All the ideas swirl together until they make this like perfect goulash, I guess, is the best term I could think of off the top of my head in one second. That would lead him to be a part of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. Now, what's special about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, you may ask? Well, obviously, if I'm talking to people who've ever seen the movie Glory... And this is the reason why I want to do this, because Glory is one of my favorite um, nonfiction war movies that I've ever seen. Um, And I wanted to do an episode on these guys uh, at some point. And obviously, it's not going to be as detailed and crazy as some of the the previous ones. Just a kind of a small guy. But the 54th Massachusetts, Massachusetts, excuse me, Volunteer Infantry was um, an infantry unit made up entirely, at least at the enlisted type ranks, of black men. So authorized by the Emancipation Proclamation, this regiment consisted of, 
like I said, African-American enlisted men, and these men would then be commanded by white officers because, of course, we we get these things and we still can't quite figure out that, like, they're these black men are good enough to serve as free men in an infantry unit, but not quite good enough to actually command each other. We still got to get these uh, these white men to be in charge. Well, one of these white men was Robert Gould Shaw. Um, Governor uh, John Andrew of Massachusetts at the time, um, who had been pressuring the U.S. Department of War to begin uh, recruiting African-Americans, knowing that there was a huge section of men who were just ripe for the picking, you know, guys who were very much anti the Confederate cause and were very able-bodied, um, probably willing to, you know, actually work for money and fight against something that they found was in justice instead of just being slaves. And there were freemen as well. Let's not get it wrong. This wasn't all emancipated slaves that were that made a part of the uh the fifty fourth in Massachusetts. There was also uh northern and southern freemen who were part of this as well. Um Governor Andrew decides to appoint Robert Gould Shaw um as 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 the the regiment colonel, the guy who would command uh the regiment uh going forward. And at first, at first, Robert Gould Shaw was fairly reluctant to want to take the position. He he wasn't entirely certain, especially after being involved in Antietam and seeing a lot of the the men he had served with get blasted to death. And you know, just he he wasn't entirely certain that this was a great idea to to begin with, and that he would want to do it. But he did take the position mostly at the behest of his parents. He he very much respected his mother and father and knew that this was something that they wanted and that this is something that they would um very much approve of and 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 so he figured, you know, I know these men can serve as well as white men. I know it and you know, this is the right thing to do. Maybe I'm not 100% into it, but I'm just going to give it a shot and I will take command of the 54th Massachusetts made up of all um black men. So he did so in uh, 1863. Now, it's interesting to note that morale with this unit, despite being paid less at first than uh, the same white units in the Union Army and, um, you know, being basically shit on because of ultra racism, the morale was still extremely high. This is also despite the fact that President Jefferson Davis of the Confederate States of America had made a proclamation a few months earlier in December of 1862 basically saying that any African-American enlisted men and white officers of those men were basically going to be executed if they were ever captured in battle against the Confederacy. Uh, It was affirmed later um, by the Confederate Congress in January of 1863, and basically it was it was one of those things that was sort of meant to you know serve as a deterrent, hopefully, because even though I don't doubt that they were going to do those things that they said, you know they they knew the Southern men, you know Jefferson Davis and company knew that if the Union was going to be able to start mustering gigantic. Um, uh, regiments of black troops on top of the fact that they already had a numerical advantage in armies anyway, it was only going to be a matter of time with even more numerical supremacy that the Confederate cause was going to be smashed into the ground because you can only do so much, even if most 
Confederate generals and Confederate soldiers were um, reasonably superior, at least general-wise. I say leadership-wise, very much superior to Union leadership. Uh, Soldier-wise is probably a bit of a wash, but most of the fighting occurred in the South. Not all of it, obviously, but a lot of fighting occurred in the South where people um, who are native to the area obviously have an advantage of of home field, you know, knowing what's going on, where things are, and how things work. Despite that, it's very difficult to beat a in, an insane numerical advantage that the northern you know Union states had, especially because this war wasn't going to just last for you know a few scant months and be over with. It became this long and drawn out uh, uh, war of attrition. And if you're going to fight a war of attrition, you better have you better damn well have some sort of currency. And unfortunately, in war, currency is men's lives, currency that you can spend and outspend and continue to spend until the other person's you know pile of chips is gone. And the South knew this and took into effect, you know, that was what was going to happen. So Robert Gouldshaw takes over um, this company. And for a while, it, it, it seems really shitty to him. He, he had been fighting in combat. He knew that his men could fight in combat. He was training them to be good soldiers, and he knew that they had excellent potential. But they were basically just sent to be manual laborers, um, sort of behind the front lines. And he thought this was absolute and total bullshit. And in fact, got to the point where he had found out that his men actually weren't even making as much money, as I mentioned, as other white battalions. So he encouraged those men to refuse service and refuse pay until they were paid the same thing. Also, you know, giving up his own paycheck, whatever that was, in solidarity with his men, which eventually they did grant these men equal pay. So... A fantastic, a fantastic uh, a move toward egalitarianism. Uh, he eventually, as part of, you know, as being the colonel uh, of this regiment, he is sort of under um, um, this other colonel uh, who was making combat in this general region of Darien, Georgia. He witnesses the uh, civilian population of women and children being fired upon, uh, forced from their homes, their possessions being looted, the town being burned down. He was ordered by Colonel James Montgomery, who was in charge of this uh, battalion doing this, that he should, you know, join him in the burning of the town because James Montgomery wanted, you know, to, 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 to use total war, basically, against the South, you know, and if we ever talk about um, Sherman, we may talk more about the insanity of total war, but James Montgomery wanted to perform, you know, a small-scale total war on this, uh, this, this town of Darien, Georgia, where he would just literally kill and destroy everybody and burn everything down, and that was going to be the end of it, and... Colonel Shaw disagreed and did not want to be a part of shit like this. He did not want to be a part of war crimes. Um, another, you know, excellent sort of uh, mark of his his character. Um, you know, you can see uh, the bond between him and his men growing and growing as he has fought for them and he, he just, you know, didn't want to sell them out for stupid shit that they you know, that other men were doing around them, especially because some of his men were from the area. He didn't want to show them that it was okay to be a dickhead 
and kill people and hurt people if it wasn't within the confines of battle in war. It wasn't okay, in Robert's opinion, to you know, hurt civilians, to hurt children, to hurt women, to hurt men who weren't fighting, to burn down homes, to salt the land crop-wise, you know, so nothing can grow and all that shit. He just wasn't into that because he had this, you know, this sort of romantic notion of war, this romantic notion of combat, and he passed that on to his men. Now we get to the sad part of the story, the the, the culmination of Robert Gould Shaw and his men's, um, you know, their bravery and and their their ultimate sacrifice at the Battle of um, Fort Wagner. So the 54th Regiment is sent to Charleston, South Carolina. This is after the uh, the skirmish in Darien, Georgia, to to take part in operations against you know Confederate stationed all around. Or Charleston, South Carolina, is a hotbed for Confederate um, war making at this point. Um, on July 18th of 1863, along with two brigades of white troops, the 54th then assaulted Fort Wagner. At first, the unit hesitates in the face of the fire of, of the Confederate station there, but Shaw led his men into battle, shouting, Forward, 54th, forward! He mounted this attack, and he urged his men forward, but unfortunately was shot through the chest three times and died almost instantly. According later to the color sergeant of the 54th, a man carrying the flag, he was shot and killed while trying to lead the unit forward and fell on the outside of the fort. Now, eventually, the uh, the 54th would continue this assault, seeing the the, the brave uh, charge of their leader, uh, Robert Gould Shaw, and, and made every attempt to capture um, Fort Wagner. Unfortunately, they, they weren't able to do so, dis- despite their bravery, despite killing a great deal of Confederate soldiers, the 54th Massachusetts was unable to take the fort through the night. The fort the next morning still belonged to the Confederates. But despite this uh, a sort of lack of, of success in taking the fort, his death and the death of many men in the 54th uh, Massachusetts would inspire even more Enlistment and more mobilization of African American troops in the Union forces, a key development that uh, President Lincoln would later note as helping secure the final victory of the war. And actually, decades later, Sergeant William Harvey Carney was awarded um, the Medal of Honor, the first African American man given the Medal of Honor for grabbing the um, the U.S. flag as the flag bearer, uh, the original flag bearer, the color bearer, fell. He carried the flag then to the enemy ramparts and back, singing, boys, the old flag never touched the ground. So that's interesting as well. And and in addition to Robert Gould Shaw, you know, having having led his troops as, as bravely as he could, he was, you know, utterly disrespected still by Confederate troops. Um, and I'm going to read this quote here, and it has a word in it that I don't like very much, but of course we're reading it in the context of the Civil War at the time from a Confederate general named Johnson uh, Haggood. He normally would return the bodies of other Union officers who had died, but he left Robert Gould Shaw's body where it lie among uh, the mass grave that he was basically thrown into afterwards. He uh, informed a captured Union surgeon that, quote, had he been in command of white troops, I should have given him an honorable burial. As it is, I shall bury him in the common trench with the niggers that fell with him, unquote. Now, although the gesture was intended as an insult by the Confederates, it came to be seen kind of more of as an honor, excuse me, by Shaw's friends and family that he was actually buried alongside 
the men he commanded, the men that he had befriended, and the men that, you know, saw him as their leader. You know, eventually, people made an effort to get Robert Goulshaw's body back, um, but it's it's very likely that after he had been, after the, the entire mass grave had been dug up, they moved basically all the remains from that grave to Beaufort National Cemetery in, in or Beaufort, excuse me, Beaufort National Cemetery in Beaufort, South Carolina, where the gravestones were marked unknown. It is very likely that Robert Gould Shaw is uh, interred there currently. Now, after that very short story, I'm looking at the timer going, oh shit, man, we really, we really knocked through that one super quick. Now for your non-sequitur fact of the week. I lied, guys. This is actually a sequitur fact of the week. Not even a really cool fact. Just wanted to say that in actually very recently, in 2017, the sword that Robert Goulshaw was carrying when he was killed in battle was actually discovered among the artifacts in an attic of a family home all the way up in Hamilton, Massachusetts. The owners, siblings Robert Shaw and Mary Minturn Wood, donated to the Massachusetts Historical Society, where it then went on public display on July 18th. So interesting, there was a sword he brandished in battle and somehow made its way all the way up back to his home, in Massachusetts. Well, well that's, a, that's a sequitur fact. And I'd say well, that's an interesting fact. And that is episode number Tuesday or number 20 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, you can follow me at Kyle Steinhauser on Twitter. You can follow the show on Twitter. It's just me under a different guise at the Couch Pod on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram, Kyle F. Steinhauser. You can find the group on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You will find us there. I often post the show and pictures and shit of stuff I like to talk about during the show right there. It's a fun time. It is all good in the hood. I don't know what else to talk about, guys. I'm very happy to announce, just like I did at the top of the show, that I passed my boards and everything is going great there. Um, this this episode was not very good. It was very hastily thrown together, like I said, because I am busy. But I am very excited with the, the direction the show is about to take. You could consider this um, the season finale of, of season one of the show uh, uh, starting next week. So no season break. We're just going to keep going. Starting next week, we are going to do a February chocked full of Black History Month. We're going to do a podcast every Friday concerning either a figure from Black History or figures from a set of history. And we're going to go into that as our theme of Season 2 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast over the month of February. Then we will continue to sort of do it in sort of a thematic way month by month that way we get kind of a we get kind of a, a a way to tell more detailed stories rather than you know time hopping back and forth back and forth on a lot of unrelated stories this way we can we can either tell stories that are you know related to each other in some sort of thematic way or you know we can tell a very long 
um, multi-part story. I, I told everyone, and I was talking to my wife about this, I told everyone I wasn't going to make this like hardcore history, and I, I stand by the fact that it won't be like hardcore history because unlike that show, this show is not good, <laughs> um, and his is, and also he has much more time to do that sort of stuff. Um, but it is going to start to maybe resemble it in shades more than it does at this point. Obviously, you've seen the the show has gotten longer, so you know I I've I've found that I like talking a lot, and I found that I like talking to you guys a lot, and I feel like if I just keep doing a new exact you know weird story every single week that is so just out of left field every single time that I can never really get into this really nice groove that I want to get into. So more good things to come from the show. Interviews with people coming up as soon as I can acquire a little bit more equipment appropriately. More good stuff coming in the future. Guys, stick with us as we go forward. Tell your friends about the show. Leave a review. Speaking of reviews, this is the portion of the show that we're going to read the next review that I have. And this review was submitted a couple of months ago, and it goes like this. This is a five-star review entitled History and Laughing My Face Off. Love listening to this podcast. Kyle offers a unique perspective of particular people or events in history. He drops lots of F-bombs, which, of course, makes the content funny, especially if you know him. Encourage all to listen. There you go. I drop a lot of F-bombs. And it makes it more funny. See, everyone who disparages my use of the word fuck, it makes it fucking funny. So guys, thank you so much. Keep writing reviews. I got a, a few more here that I can read and we will continue to read on a weekly basis. But if you have not left a review, go ahead and do so. It does populate to me. It takes a couple days, but I will see it eventually. And I would love to read it on the show and it, it helps the show get it more exposure. So until next week, guys, this has been your season finale of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, until then, I'm out of here.